And before Cam starts to speak, I'd just like to quickly pray for us and for him before we listen. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and for the truth that you've shown us through it. I just ask tonight that we will have hearts that are ready to hear, um, that you will be equipping Cam, empowering him to speak your truth, um, and that we will be encouraged and challenged through what we hear tonight. Um, I ask that you'll be changing our hearts where they need to be changed, that you'll be comforting us where we need comforting, um, that you'll be encouraging us where we need encouraging, that most of all we will be ready to um, submit and surrender our lives to you and to the call you have made uh, for us, particularly in this area of manhood. So we commit this night to you. Um, we pray these things in the name of your son. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Beth. I made sure I bought my pink drink bottle to make sure we knew what I'm not talking about with being a man. Um, no, I'm just kidding. It's the only drink bottle I have, unfortunately. Um, well, good evening, everyone. Uh, it's, it's a privilege to be able to be here and to be able to share this message with you. Now, I'll say from, from the out, out front that this is one of the more difficult sermons that I've had to prepare Um, God has used it to severely challenge me. I actually got sick with pneumonia recently and and there's nothing worse than being that sick and learning what it means to be a man because it really takes you away from your own self-centeredness in that and Signa can testify to that. Um, Sometimes it's felt like she's had to look after a child um, in my sickness. Um, But it's great to have you here uh, and I hope it's been an encouraging night uh, for you. It's been encouraging to me. It's so great to have... Anya here, and um, I'm sure that's already been an encouragement for you. Uh, Tonight we're dealing with a topic that is pretty difficult, uh, particularly in the culture and environment that we are in at the moment. Uh, We all know that this is controversial. The purpose of a man is, is saying something that our culture has something to say about, particularly in terms of the distinctions between a man and a woman. You see, at worst, our culture would say that there is no distinction that even biological difference ultimately make no difference to whether you want to be a man or whether you want to be a woman. And while I feel like as Christians in this room, a lot of us would disagree with the cultural push towards removing genders, I think a lot of us would not know how to define what it means to be a man before God and what it means to be a woman before God. And so we want to talk about these things. We want to bring clarity to these situations so that we can be good voices and representatives to God in this world. And, and so I wonder if I asked you the question, what does it mean to be a man? What comes to your mind? What comes to your mind when you think about that question? Perhaps it's the Samson imagery an image of a man who is strong and, and well-built and muscly and, and never displays any sort of weakness. I really hope for myself that's not the case. Perhaps it's the, the, the mighty warrior-like image, like David, who, who wins all the battles that he, he goes in, that, that never backs down. Or perhaps, and I would hope not, perhaps it's the sexual imagery of a man in the sense that a man who can get any woman that he wants. There's lots of different cultural images behind what it means to be a man. 
And so obviously with such a big topic, we're not going to be able to cover everything tonight. It's such, such a vast topic, really to condense it into a 30-minute sermon is quite difficult. But we're going to learn a few lessons from Genesis chapter 2 tonight. So I would encourage you, I will have some of the text up on the screen, but if you have Bibles, please open it to Genesis chapter 2. Before I begin, I wanted to share a couple of points. Firstly, I want to make clear that I share this message, as I do with all my messages, as someone who is on this journey with you. Do not hear from me saying that I am up here knowing exactly what it means to be a man. I've got this under control, so please listen and learn from me. No, my goal tonight is to bring God's word before you so that we may learn together what this means. And that's always our goal when we listen to a sermon. Secondly, I want to say that if you disagree with something that I say tonight, that's okay. You're actually allowed to disagree. Uh, we, we also have uh, questions that you can text through. We're going to have a little bit of time to answer some questions. If there's things that, that you find difficulty with, I would encourage you not to let that difficulty lead to anger and frustration and cause you not to listen tonight. I would encourage you to engage with God's Word, to maybe ask yourself why these things are causing so much tension and frustration within you to bring that before God as well. And finally, for the women sitting in this room and you wonder, what am I going to do with this sermon? Uh, I want to encourage you that as particularly those women here who are a part of the CGC family, that this is important for you to know what it means to be a man because we, you need to expect this from us as men and you need to encourage us in this. Women have a big role in this, particularly if, if women set the bar low for, for men, oftentimes we'll achieve that very low bar. One of my favorite preachers, Matt Chandler, he says, if you set the bar low, you'll have a lot of boys who can shave, but you won't have men. And that's often what can happen. So women, this sermon is important for you as well. So Genesis chapter 2 before we get there, I want to remind you of last night's service. Last time we spoke on Genesis chapter 1, and, and to give context, it's really important to know what Genesis chapter 1 says. If you, if you miss Genesis chapter 1 tonight, you're going to misread what I'm saying about Genesis chapter 2. Because see, Genesis chapter 1 makes two things clear. It makes clear that humanity was created in the image of God. Now, now, why is this important? Because it shows us two things. It shows us that fundamentally, man and woman have equal worth and value before God. There is no question about that. They are spiritually equal and they are valuable before the Lord. But the second thing it shows is that at the biggest scale, man and woman's purpose is the same. And that is to walk in relationship with God and to glorify his name. There is no distinction there between man and woman. We have equal worth and value, and we both are called to walk in a relationship with the Lord, to love Him, and to glorify His name. That is our big purpose. But what we also want to know is that Genesis 2 highlights some distinctions between a man and a woman. Genesis 1 shows us the equality. Genesis 2 shows us the distinctions. And we need to remember Genesis 1, lest we hear the voice of the world and begin to put our identity in our role rather than who we are before God. 
The worldly voice says men and women can't have different roles because it's unfair. The godly voice says that we do have differing roles, but our worth and value are the same. Our identity is not in what we do, but in Christ. So let's look at our passage today. Genesis chapter 2. We're not going to read the whole lot. We're going to just go through this text and look at it together. And as we do, we're going to go through from Genesis 2 and flick across to Genesis 3 and show how sin has corrupted God's ideal. So we'll see the ideal and then we'll see the corruption of the ideal. And then we'll conclude tonight with some bad news, which is actually really good news for us. So chapter 2 of Genesis, starting at verse 5. Here's what it says. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust, formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So, so we, just at the beginning here, we get this picture of, of a God who's created all things. A God who breathes life into the man, creates him from the dust and places him within the midst of this beautiful creation. Then we get verses 10 to 14 after this, it talks about how, how out of Eden there are rivers flowing in every direction. This is a picture of life. There is God's provision is abundance in Eden. Man has all that he needs from God. But at this stage, apart from enjoying the food and all the amazing sights, man doesn't really have a purpose. God has not indicated anything yet that would suggest that he has given him a purpose. That's until we get to verse 15. God is going to say directly and clearly one of the reasons he has created man. And it's going to highlight our first point. Verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Why? To work it and to keep it. So, so there we have it. The first thing that God has given to man and the first thing he says into his purpose is to work the garden and to keep it. Now, something just to note here is woman is not on the scene yet. He has given this man a specific role to work and to keep, or in other words, to grow and to protect. And the word I want to use here is to cultivate. So, so our first point is man's purpose is to cultivate for the glory of God. Now, now this might be disappointing news for some of you here, but in God's original creation... Work was a good thing. I'm sorry to break that to many of you. Heaven will not be a place of endless hours of relaxation. God gave us work and it was good. But I want to define what this means that man is created to cultivate for the glory of God because I'm not talking here about your nine-to-five job. That's not what I'm saying. I would define the purpose of work like this. The purpose of work is to be, to be actively engaged in work in all areas of life in order that we may see the people around us flourish, God's kingdom be displayed, and lost people come 
to Christ. And it's important that we understand that, that we use the word around us that people may flourish because overwork is just as much of a sin as anything else. So we want to know that this is actually underneath this. We are called to cultivate, to work hard in all areas of life in order that we may see people around us flourish, God's kingdom be displayed, and lost people come to Christ. And so this applies no matter what season of life we're in. Whether you're at uni and and you have a part-time job, whether you're currently living at home and you don't have a job, whether you're retired and and just involved in volunteer work, whether you're raising a family, regardless of the situation you're in, we are called to work and to work for the glory of God. So it's important here to see that our purpose goes beyond just being, our work goes beyond just about being for me and for my financial security. I think one of the big dangers in Christian life is to somehow separate our church life from our work life. To think that my nine-to-five job is not as important to God as my church ministry. There is no distinction between these two things. God has called us to live for his glory in all areas, to see these as an opportunity for him to work. But I'm willing to bet for most of us here, When we think about this idea of work, we probably don't have the best opinion of it. It's probably more of a burden and and a difficulty, something we just kind of want to get through to make the money so that we can rest and relax. So something has gone wrong. We, We see that, we know that, but we want to see what actually has happened. We all know that in Genesis chapter 3, man and woman decided to rebel against God, to make themselves their own God, to say, in a sense, God, we're better at being God than you are. We know what's good for us. And as a result of this, and we're going to see this a lot tonight, is it distorts God's original creation. So let's look at this. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, particularly how it relates to this first point, Genesis 3.17 says this, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So, So do you see how God's creation, his original intention is being distorted? Work which was good has become tiring and hard. The ground is cursed. It, it produces thorns and thistles. It'll be difficult. It's like a picture of sweat and, and hardship. And, and even after that, it's not worth what we get from it. So our rebellion against God has created this distortion of his original intent. And this really brings us to one of the challenges from this passage. One of our biggest dangers as men is to be passive. Is to opt out, to to have a laziness and a lack of a desire to engage in work the way we are created to do. To opt out and let others do the hard work. And and so the question for us is, whatever season we are in, Are we engaging in a lifestyle of work for the glory of God or have we become passive? Have we become lazy? Have we begun to idolize a life that revolves around relaxation, entertainment, and comfort? 
each of us as men need to consider this question. And this is why I emphasize it's not about the season of life you're in. As, as a real practical example, I know we have a few men here who are still living at home. I want to give you a really practical example of this, of what this could look like. And it's a dangerous question. I want to warn you. Men in this room, go up to your parents, probably mum, because dad probably has less idea of what's going on, and, and, and ask them, what, what, can, what can I actually be doing to help out around the house more? Difficult, really risky question. Really difficult question. But I've got to admit, and I should apologize to my mum right here, that I didn't do this well. I, I actually was acting like a boy. As men, we actually called to look after our household. In that sense, we're called to help out. We're called to get off the couch. We're called not to, 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 to opt out and be lazy. Now, women, mums, if your son asks you this question, just remember that slavery was outlawed a while ago. Have mercy and maybe start small. I know it's a dangerous question. But, but honestly, all, all jokes aside, we're actually called to this. We are not called to be boys who let their mum wait on us hand and foot. So what about you? Are you brave enough to consider this question of how we are using our time for the glory of God? Ask God to reveal to you what areas in your life are you being passive? What areas of your life have, have you given away this call and indulging in laziness and boredom? Whether that's filling up your days with video games and, and relaxation, or whether that's as a husband coming home and not engaging with your children, not helping out around the house, these things are not what we are called to do. What has God revealed to you? What is God revealing to you about how you might be being passive? Christian men in this room understand that we are a part of an ultimate story of God's redeeming work through Christ. This is an amazing story, and this is what we need to be working towards. And by the way, can I just say, when I say work, we need to be working hard on resting, like Chris shared with us this morning. This is not exclusively working in that sense. It's working hard in our relationship with God, working hard to rest. It's taking the responsibility seriously of this call. And so this is point one. As men, we are called to cultivate for the glory of God so that society and the people around us may flourish and God may get the glory. Let's, let's keep moving. Now, this next point, we're going to spend a bit more time on this next point because it's probably the one that's most controversial and, and, and I want to be clear in what I am saying. So, so follow along with me with this point. I'm going to give it to you straight out. So point one, man's purpose is to cultivate. Point two is that man's purpose is to lead in a unique way. And I want to put a word in brackets here that needs some redeeming in and of itself. It may cause what Beth said earlier, some weird emotions within you. It may cause you to get anxious straight away. And that word is headship. So I want to say 
Man's purpose is to, uh, is to lead, in brackets, headship for the glory of God. It is given over to the role of the man to lead, and that leadership has a unique element in it, finding expression in this word called headship. Now, I want to be clear from the outset, this point is not to say that women can't lead, but rather that men are called to lead in a unique way. Headship is the responsibility and burden of the man. And this unique leadership of the man plays out in three different spheres, in the church, in marriage, and in culture. But we're not going to be able to spend time in all of those places tonight. We're going to focus predominantly on marriage and, and, and on the wider uh, application of this because we just simply do not have time. And this comes out clearly in Genesis chapter 2. Now, before we get into the text, and I know I'm front-loading a lot, but I want to define headship in a way that is helpful for us because I know it's, again, a word that we probably don't use today, but it is a biblical word. So here's how I would define it. Actually, not how I would define it. A definition I found helpful from Matt Chandler. Here's what he says. Headship is the unique leadership of the man in the work of establishing order for human flourishing. So headship is the unique leadership of the man in the work of establishing order for human flourishing. So, so now that we've defined it, I want to be really clear and show us from Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 where this comes from. Because I think it's important that we, we actually look at God's word for ourselves. So I have five very quick points from Genesis to kind of bring this out. So Genesis chapter 2, here's, here's a couple of things to notice. Genesis 2, 7 God creates man first. Now, now, most people want to overlook this fact, but God could very easily have created man and woman at the same time, but he chose not to. He created man first. And Paul talks about that as important in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So, so that's point one. We, we see man is created first, given, and, and point two, man is given specific tasks before God before the woman comes onto the scene. Again, this is important. Look at verse 15. We saw already that man has been given a role of working and keeping. And then in the next verse, verse 16, God gives the command to the man not to eat from, the tree, from every tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. So again, God, God gives this command specifically to the man. And, and it seems like in this passage, he's given the responsibility to communicate that, that command to Eve. Thirdly, in this same point, God gives a command to the, the man to name the animals. He's given the responsibility to, to, to bring the animals before himself and to name them. So, so we see here man getting these specific roles of leadership before the woman came onto the scene. Point three, woman woman is given a different role to man that highlights the unique leadership of the man. So look at verse 18. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and, that the, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to man. So we see here that 
God created man from the dust, breathed life into him, and then he creates a woman from the man and gives, him, gives her this task of helper to come alongside the man in the roles that he has been given by God. Now, this shows fundamentally from God's creative purpose that, that man was given a role of a leadership, a unique leadership role, and woman a, a, a role of helping. But I want to be clear, because I know these things, for some of us, probably don't sit right. So I want to clarify something that I think is really important. This word for helper, which is used here in Genesis chapter 2, is the same word that is used of God as our helper. So this is the same word used for God as he helps us, as he comes alongside us. And so there is in no way in this word a, a lesser kind of role. That's not what it is displaying. It's actually displaying an amazing role by showing that it's the same word that's used of God. God leads and God helps. Neither one of these things calls for any offense because they are both rooted in who God is. And so we see in this, this this differing role between a man and a woman, which plays out in many different ways. I think if we just put the text aside for a second and, and we look around at the community around us, we know men and women are different in many different ways. But these things aren't about lesser, lesser than and greater than, but are just different. I want to read this quote out from Wayne Grudem that I found. I think it's a really helpful quote when, it, when we think about some of the, the questions that might come up. Here's what it says, and it's on the screen. When someone asks if, a woman, if a women are weaker than men, or smarter than men, or more easily frightened than men, or something like that, perhaps the best way to answer is this. Women are weaker than, in some ways than men. Oh, sorry. Women are weaker in some ways, and men are weaker in some ways. Women are smarter in some ways, and men are smarter in some ways. Women are more easily frightened in some ways and men are more easily frightened in others. It is dangerous to put negative values on the so-called weaknesses that each of us has. God intends for all the weaknesses that characteristically belong to man to call forth and highlight women's strengths. And God intends for all the weaknesses that characteristically belong to women to call forth and highlight man's strengths. And so there's this beautiful picture of how together man and woman display who God is. All right, so now we want to jump across to Genesis 3 to show how sin messes this up, but also to show further this point of man giving this unique leadership role. Now, we're going to read out the fall in chapter 3, starting at verse 1. It's really interesting stuff here to look at. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. God didn't actually say that. Lest you Die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to, be, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her stupid husband, my translation, who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. So there's so many lessons from this text, so many things you could draw out. If this one chapter wasn't in the Bible, none of it would make sense. But what I want to see here, and this is really interesting to see, and to point four of under this point of God's unique leadership, is that sin distorts God's creative and God-given roles. So what do I mean by that? I want you to see here what actually took place in the garden. If we see God's creative order for a second, we have this picture of God creating God at the very ruler over all things, creates man, given a unique leadership role, and then creates woman, both equal in the image of God, in worth and value, and then to be ruled, to rule over underneath at the very bottom, animals. Did you notice what happened in the fall? What is... Uh, What does it say in verse 1? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. And so we see here a complete reversal of God's order. Woman listens to the animal. Woman listens to the animal. Adam listens to the woman. And none of them listen to God. There's this complete reversal of what God had intended it to be. And this is always what sin does. Sin will always distort God's creation. Sin will always distort God's creation. And so we see in this chapter, in these verses, not only does the man and the woman take the, the fruit and eat it and sin against God, they also exchange their roles. And we see this. Look at verse 17 of chapter 3. I want this to be clear. Look what he says to the man in chapter 3. You would expect him to say, because you have eaten of the fruit from the tree, like Eve, but, but he actually says, because you listened to the voice of your wife and ate of the fruit of the tree. The purpose here is highlighting Adam's giving away, his passivity in standing by, giving away his responsibility, letting Eve walk into danger, knowing full well what was taking place. It highlights this exchange of roles. And finally, the last thing we'll see here in verse 9, God comes back on the scene. And now, I hope you know, when, when the Lord calls out and says, where are you, to the man and the woman, he, he knows exactly where they are. He knows exactly what has just taken place. He sees all and he knows all, and yet look what he does. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sounds of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And then Adam goes on to to blame his wife for what has taken place. So, So finally here, I want you to see that man is the one who bears primary responsibility for what took place in the garden. God calls out to him as the one who is responsible ultimately. 
And we see that further in the curses. Adam receives the longest curse. He's the one who the ground is cursed because of. He's the one who has brought death into the world, as it says in the curses as well. Man bears the primary responsibility for what took place here. And so there's lots to say in this, but I hope this can give a small kind of picture of where we are getting this from. But, as I said, sin has messed this up. And it's really important for us to spend time here because we know, we know looking around that sin has messed this up. I want to look at one verse to show this, to make this really clear. It's going to frame how this is messed up. I want to look at verse 16 of chapter 3. Again, it's in the curse section. This is really important. God is handing out the curse to the woman. And I want to read out, most of your translations will say that um, uh, it talks about the childbirth, the multiplying the pains in childbirth. And then the second part of verse 16 in your version, it probably says, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. I want to read from the net version of the Bible. It's up on the screen, so everyone have a look. It really captures the meaning behind the words. So net version, translation, says, you will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. So, so why is this important? It's important because we see that sin fractures both man's call to biblical headship and woman's desire to come underneath that headship. So, so this is important because it shows that there's two sins here. God has created a sinful desire within women to want to control and rule over her husband. But at the same time, there is a sinful desire within man to dominate and rule over his wife in a way that is unbiblical in a way that is not the way that God intended it to be. This is part of the curse of sin. And we don't have to look very far to see that this is true. We don't have to look very far to see some of the horrible stuff within our culture and even within our church to see that this is true, that there is a fracture between man and women and that there is a sinful display of male domination that exists. And ever since the fall of humanity, this has existed and it needs to be called out. So I want to be clear that male domination is any act that belittles, cheapens or dishonors a woman as God's equal image bearers. And this finds its expression in many forms, not only within marriage itself, but also outside of marriage. You see, this finds an expression within marriage when, when a man says things like, it's my way or the highway. This is the way we're going and I don't care what you say. This is not biblical and this is belittling. If you're trying to fit into your definition of male headship that you get to just say, this is the way we're going without listening, without caring, it's not biblical. And it needs to be stopped. This also finds an expression in any kind of sexual exploitation of a woman. This is the ultimate form of man asserting an unbiblical dominance over a woman. We see this in the use of pornography, literally turning a woman into a subject for the man's own pleasure. We see this in 
viewing any content that bypasses a woman as God's image bearers. It comes out in verbal and physical abuse. It comes out in any of these things that belittle and make woman lesser than man. And I want to be firm on this, that if you're involved in any of these things, the Holy Spirit calls you to repentance. This is not biblical, and this is against God's creative design. You see, true biblical headship will always, let me emphasize that, will always result in the woman's fulfillment, honor, and joy. Always. Why? I'll show you. We only need to go to one place to see and to remove any kind of misreading of what this is. Ephesians 5.25. Everyone turn there if you have it before you. Ephesians 5.25. This is the only text we need to see. Verse 25 says this. Husbands, love your wives as what? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Men, we are called within marriage, and for that matter, beyond marriage, to treat woman as Christ did the church by giving himself up for her. You see, Jesus always seeks the upbuilding and good of his church. And he calls us as husbands and as men to always seek the fulfillment, joy, and honor of the women in our lives. Can you see why this excludes any kind of belittlement or pressing down or abuse or any actions that treat women in a lesser way? Because if you do that, you're actually saying that's what Christ does to us. And we know that that's not true. We know that Christ always does what is good and honoring for his church. And so, so men who, who are married here, are you taking primary responsibility to lead your marriage in a way that is God-glorifying? You bear that responsibility. This is not primarily to do with decision-making. It's to do with initiating. It's to do with leading the way in the sense of setting a culture that is glorifying to God. We bear that responsibility and we need to treat it seriously. What areas in your marriage might you need to step up? Men men who aren't married. Are we displaying ways of unhelpful domination of women, whatever that looks like? Are there areas of life that we need to change our actions or our thoughts or our attitudes towards women? This is so important and God calls us to, Jesus calls us to change our ways in this. Now, we don't have time to go to church and culture all I would say, say with church is that our church functions in a way where males are in the position of eldership and pastorship. And, and, and that's, that's something that I've come to the conclusion of. Um, but the same with culture. I think 
Uh, I think there is a wider responsibility of men, and I'll only say this and that's it. There is a wider responsibility of men to protect and care for women. I think that is a biblical thing. So, so that's our second point. I know we spent a lot of time there, and I promise the last point is going to be much faster. Point one, man is called to cultivate for the glory of God. Man is also called to lead in a unique way for the glory of God. And our last point, briefly, is man is called to be in relationship for the glory of God. So, so we see this very clearly come out in Genesis 2.18. It's very interesting, actually. I don't know if you've noticed this before, but before sin entered into the world, something was not good. We get that constant refrain in Genesis. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good, but then there was something that was not good. 2.18 says, It is not good that the man should be alone. Now, now, I don't think this verse is only referring to marriage, but it's referring to men in general that we do very poorly alone. As men, we are called to deep relationships with one another. We are called to deep relationships with one another as men. You see, one of the lies of our culture is that as men, we always display this strong exterior. We never show weakness. We never talk about the serious stuff with one another. We don't do that as men. But that's a lie. We're called to this kind of depth in our relationships. And I would challenge you, men who have friends who are men, how often, well, firstly, do you even know how your friend's relationship with God is going? Do you know their weaknesses and their strengths? Do you know their battles and their good times? As men, we are called to take our relationships seriously. How many of us might need to change that to create a culture in this church where men actually do life with one another in a deep and meaningful way? And so so these are our points from from Genesis chapter 2. Men are called to cultivate by working hard to build God's kingdom in the world. Men are called to lead headship specifically within the home, which, which shows itself in Christ laying his life down for the church. And we're called to do life deeply with one another. But the question is, what, what do we do with this? Because the, the bad news, honestly, with this is even the most godly man anyone in this room has ever met falls far short of what we are called to as man. We are broken to our core and not just as men in this room but as humanity. When we sinned it was not primarily that we lost our identity as man and woman. We lost our relationship with God and therefore we lost everything else. But Christ has come to fulfill what it actually means to be a man. He's the only true man that has ever lived. He worked hard for the flourishing of God's kingdom and society. He led in a way that always, always lifted up those who he was leading and never in a domineering way. He built relationships that were so deep that 11 out of the 12 who walked most closely with him were martyred and died for him. But ultimately, this is displayed fully in the cross. Jesus worked hard, and we see that in the garden. 
Not my will, Lord, but yours. He goes to the cross. He does this to restore our relationship. He leads by humbly submitting himself to Christ, to, to his work on the cross. This is what Christ did. Now, I could, I could finish here and just simply say, now go and be like Christ. Men, we need to be like Christ. But that would be incredibly depressing for me because I know I can't, I can't be like Christ. You see, men, all of this will only come through the realization of the grace that has been given to us in Christ, not only when we became a believer, but the grace and power that is continually giving to, given to us as men through Christ. All of this will only come out of a deepening relationship and a life-giving relationship with Jesus. It will only be out of knowing and loving Jesus more that we'll be able to apply anything that we have spoken about tonight. So I want to call men to go to him, to get on your knees and ask him for the power and strength and grace to help you to live as you've been called to live. So don't hear tonight, I just got to work harder. It all flows out of a deepening love and relationship with, Lord Je- with the Lord Jesus. And regardless of your position, man or woman here tonight, the, the ultimate question from Genesis chapter 2 and 3 is, have you been reconciled to God through Christ? Have, has your relationship with God been restored through a faith in Jesus Christ? Because if that has not happened, none of this will make sense. None of this will work. All of this stuff will lead to frustration and anger. In fact, I would say that this, this message, these things aren't the offense of Christianity. The biggest offense of Christianity is the gospel, that Jesus Christ would go to the cross, God himself, to die for our sins and to give us the opportunity to be restored in a relationship with him. This is the message that we need, and only out of that will we grow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we know uh, as men, but as women as well, that, Lord, we have fallen short of what you call us to. We know that we need your grace and your mercy time and time again, Lord. I just want to pray for us, Lord, that you help us as men to, to keep you at the very center of our lives, Lord to look to you to shape who we are as men, to look to you as the one who gives us the power and the strength to, to lead, to, to work, to, to be in relationship with others, Lord. This all comes from you. I pray, Lord, that you'll forgive us when we have belittled or pressed down women in our own lives, Lord. Forgive us for our sin in that way and help us, Lord, not to do that by the power and grace that you've given us. And Lord, help each one of us here, um, I guess, to see the truth from these passages, to pursue you, to love you, and to allow you to be the one to shape us for your glory. And so we just commit these things to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Cool. Well, we're supposed to have questions now. We only do a couple because we're getting on with time, but... Was there any questions anyway? We do have a couple of questions. Okay. I've got cool. a really um, easy one for you to start off with. Oh, well, now you've put pressure on me that it's easy. Um, 
Is it strange to feel insecure about the leadership, power and domination over women? And is it bad to feel that way? Well, I think I would say no, it's not bad to feel that way because I think, as we saw in our passage, this is something that exists because of sin. And so I think the reality of that and the reality of sin is something that is to be insecure about. Um, But I think the great truth of that is that Christ has come uh, to pay for... Sorry, to pay for our sins. Um, and so I, I would I definitely say that's a, that's a normal thing to have that insecurity and not to put yourself down because of that. We're all broken and sin has broken this world. And so hopefully that, that answers it in brief. Um, another one. How can mm-hmm. women practically support the men around them to fulfill their purpose? How can men practically... How can, well, that's the next sermon, isn't it? <laughs> Surely women have a purpose outside of supporting men, though, right? Oh, of course. I'm just saying that I'm trying to dodge the question, in all honesty. Um, Can you repeat it? How can women practically support the men around them to fulfil their purpose? Well, I think, in all honesty, I I think through encouragement and, and actually voicing the truth to us as men, I think... It's really easy. I think men feel... Well, I can only speak for me, but it's easy to feel very insecure as men into what we are called to be. Um, and so I think it's, that's a very practical way is actually through encouragement of men, the men that are around you. I think very rarely... Well, it can be very rare at times to get that sort of encouragement um, in our lives. And so I think that would be one thing. But I would say come to the next sermon and they're going to give you a whole bunch more of things that will be helpful. Um, And last one, how much did you spend on that haircut? It's mighty fresh. Well, well, thanks, whoever said that. It also has I've got my suspicions of either Daniel Garner or Tim Minette. Um, (laughs) Those are my two options. Um, Well, actually, this is all Signa's vision uh, for my hair. It's it's a vision. It's a vision that began three years ago when I met her in in Europe. Um, You know, European haircuts are quite on point, and so ever since ever since marrying Signa, she has a vision for my hair, and and hopefully it's been pulled off. Anyways, I think that's a good way to finish, probably. (laughs) Thank you very much, Ken. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'll leave it to you. Um, Yes, we really appreciate your um, courage, Cam, and your willingness to talk on this topic. So thank you very much for doing that. Um, We are going to have a meal together now.